Connors tea. How are ye? We're Candle of Tales and we're here to light a candle and tell a tale. So, light her up. Right. That was a match strike, by the way. Just to let you know. It wasn't distortion. I mean, stop laughing at me. It's just that was what it was. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I mean, they'll get used to it, but, you know, I wanted to just explain that. Somebody got confused. Yeah, yeah. You, you always know it's a good start when you have to explain it immediately. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a joke, so I think we'll get away with it. Anyway, we're Candlelit Tales. I'm sitting down with my sister. My name is Aaron. And, and I'm Sarika. Great. We're Candlelit Tales. We're a group of storytellers and we play music and tell stories and in this podcast we're going to be telling another story and talking about it afterwards last time we heard about well we heard the first half of a show that was recorded live in Whelan's which is a venue in Dublin and that was on the 22nd of October 2018 which was just about a month ago yeah which in fairness it's not that surprising it took us only a month to get this podcast out because it took us about two years to actually buy a recorder for yeah, this podcast. We're we're like we take our time with things. We're well, not uh, we're not swift. We won't be wasting your time though. Uh-huh. See what I did there now. <laughs> Good God. Anyway, last. So why don't you uh, why don't you recap for anybody who hasn't listened to episode one or who listened to episode one but listened to it like two weeks ago? You know, right? Fair what enough. happened previously on Candle Tales? Not not like that. You sure? No, I can do them. I know. But no, no. Oh, damn it. Uh, OK, so in the first half of Anton Bokunla, in this show, on The Shadows of the Thorn, we heard about Maeve. She wanted a bull. She really, really wanted a bull. And she wanted the brown bull of Coolie to be as good as the white horn bull of Crow Con Eye. She Fergus, had reasons. She had reasons. There was a lot of them. We won't go into it. Fergus was there. He came down from Ulster with the half of the Crave Rua, the Red Branch. He told her about the curse of Maka, which was a pretty bad curse that the lads were under. That meant any army, you know, went against them, they'd be struck down with pains. We won't go into it. That's another story we'll get into later on. And basically, they invaded Ulster to get the bull and there was only one lad who could stand in their way. One lad named Coo Cullen. Yeah, that's about a... That's, that's, about, that's about where we got to. So, this time, we're going to hear the conclusion of that story which actually ironically takes us right back into prehistory because this is a story with layers so many layers uh, so many layers like an onion no i mean it will make you cry probably quite a lot maybe depends how it it depends organic the onion is you know i mean what <laughs> you know if you're chopping a Oh, no, oh right. Aaron's making a judgment about about people's food now. Ignore no, him. no, no. <laughs> right, we went off topic there. We do that sometimes. But we're about to listen to this. Now, if you want to support us, and we started four years ago, basically asking people if they wanted to hear more of these stories, to drop some change in the hat. And we've an online hat now. It's called Patreon. And if you want to support us, you can support us by dropping some change or whatever you think it's worth to keep these stories going and flowing and you know yeah. spreading all over the Dro- world. Drop some change in the virtual hat. Yeah. Uh, but I think without further ado, uh, let's go back to Whelan's and hear the second half of the story. Yep. Now Queen Maeve's diplomacy was strained to its highest pitch. She had to keep this army she had gathered from erupting, tearing itself apart with these decades of tribal warfare that lay between the factions she was able to keep a lid on it just about. Now, one of the men, a charioteer, he went out into the forest to 
gather wood to replace the axle of the chariots that have been broken on the road so far. And as this charioteer was out in the wood, he was keeping a fearful eye out for this pound of columns. And then, as they, after he'd gathered, after he'd been there a while, he saw a beautiful, slender youth standing in the forest with seven colors in his eyes and three colors in his hair. And he called out to him. Give me out to me, young fellow, what do you ask? Don't you know your man Cook Colin is around here somewhere? For fuck's sake, I hardly see eight foot tall if he's one foot. The anger comes on him and the rage bends through so bad that one eye grows the size of a huge plate. The other one shrinks back so far with a long beak couldn't peck at it. His knees turn back the way. He, he grows claws and his teeth become fangs. He ate the legs of you in one single bite, I'm telling you. I'll chop the load of these sticks for the fucking chariot. So now I tell you what, you claim these sticks, I'll go chop more sticks, alright? Good man yourself, your best. <laughs> the young man smiled and nodded. Look out a sharp eye. And in a twinkling, in a blink of an eye, he had every one of those sticks claimed so smoothly that when a fly tried to land on one, it just slipped right off. <laughs> that it wasn't mud, but it was blood all over his boots and tunic. And he looked at his strange colored hair and eyes and something warm and wet went trickling down the side of his face. <laughs> Colin said, I don't kill charioteers, you all right? No, run away. So we ran back to me with the first report of what Colin actually looked like that any of the men had heard the exiles from Ulster. And they tended to exaggerate. Now, it was the way the Queen Maeve used to go into battle. There was a whole procedure to it. She would wear her finest dress. She would have on her shoulder her songbird to pour sweet music into her ear, and at her feet a little hound that she had raised from a pup called Bashkinen, and with her red hair streaming out behind her. She would have a chariot in front of her, and one on either side to keep the dust and the mud and the blood of battle from getting on her clothes. So she was driving through Ulster on this day, and she knew she looked good. <laughs> and then all of a sudden a stone came whizzing, and the little bird on her shoulder was gone in a little burst of feathers. Another stone came whizzing through, and her own little dog, Bashman, Colin was letting the salt breeze and wind 
three days and three nights of harrowing Maeve's army all alone. He was exhausted. So he turned around and saw Fergus, his foster father, walking towards him. He said, Ah, Fergus, it's yourself. Listen, if you'd come to me in Dundalgan, I'd have put out a feast for you, but if you wait there and wait until the wild geese fly overhead, I'll knock a few down for the supper. Uh, don't worry about it, I've already eaten a pint. <laughs> I'm sure you'll have a supper though, go on. Aye, yeah, go on. <laughs> they sat down and they had a supper. And Fergus said to Colin, Look, he wants to strike a deal. I know there's only one thing you might accept, though. The right of single combat. Instead of you facing the entire army all on your own, maybe you face one champion and may send one champion to the next day. As a result. Hey. It's interesting. Only problem is, I can't let Maeve's army roam Ulster unopposed. So, what I can do is fight one champion at the ford each day. As long as Maeve agrees that while the fighting lasts, her army can march. But as soon as the fighting is over, she has to stop. Fergus went back to Maeve with this report and she went out searching for a, a lunatic of a man to go face Cucullin that following day. And Cucullin was glad of the reprieve Here, made camp the first time Colin fell asleep the following morning. They awoke together and they made a habit of to play a game of vigil as the sun would rise with an old form of chess before chess was invented. It was an Irish game for us. Lake would describe the look of the man coming towards them and Colin would get a good estimation how best to destroy this man before he had to turn around. Now Maeve was able to get champions to face Cucullin by offering the hand of her daughter in marriage, Finever of the Fair Eyebrows. <laughs> that was her name. <laughs> and this was a bit proud because she was skimming Finever with a massive dowry and a huge amount of land. And so although they were quite terrified, a lot of the warriors of Ireland took her up on this went down to face Cucullin at the ford. The brash Etter Como, the beautiful Fian, the man of the forest, not Cran Tail. They all faced him, and they all fell. There was one warrior named Kerr, who didn't want to fight Cucullin, because he didn't want to fight a boy who didn't have a beard. So Cucullin found some blackberry juice and smeared it on his chin. And shortly after that, Kerr's hairy head went splashing into the waters of the fort. And the thing was, <laughs> there was a lot of breakages. <laughs> well, time was. Hello. I'm cute, though. Yeah, yeah. That was good. He broke a lot of heads. But you see, Cucullin had a secret weapon. If ever a challenger looked like getting the better of him, if ever a challenger was posing a threat, he could unleash this magic spear, the gay bulga. 
this queer spread through the camp, only to call him to wield this deadly weapon. It was gifted to him after he finished training with the shadowy one on her island, Scott. You see, she has forged it from the bones of a great sea monster she had found washed on her shore. She took those bones and with skill and enchantment she twisted those bones to make one spear had to be thrown from underneath the water. When it flew through the air, it made the noise of a thousand swarming bees. It would never miss its target. It was flying at the most vulnerable point of a man's body. And once it pierced the skin, its head would shatter into a thousand bars, piercing every organ. It had to be pushed all the way through because it could not be pulled out the same way it went skills are matched to pull him to a point. There was no standing against the gay So things were not going great for Queen. <laughs> she was on a clock and she knew it. The men of Ulster were going to wake up from their curse at some point. She wanted to be well out of there before they did. So she did two things. First, she didn't break the rules, but she bent the rules. She started to send more than one champion on the same day to face Cucullin. And while he was distracted by the constant fighting, she got a small band of raiders together and sent them over to Coolees to drive away the brown bull before her army. And then she went to Fergus. And she looked at him and she kind of batted her eye out of that a little bit. She said, Fergus, I have a doubt on me. Are you loyal to your old province of Ulster? Or are you loyal to me? Oh, no, I'm loyal to you, my queen. Uh, I have no loyalty left for Ulster. Uh, I hate King Grahor. All I want is to get close enough so I can kill that man dead. See, Fergus had been around Coromitness in many years, but he had never learned when he was being backed into a corner. <laughs> and so Maeve said, That's wonderful news. You won't mind killing Cucullin for me, so will you? <laughs> Fight me with a bit of wood. He took one more. 
first step and now he was within reach of Kilcullen this close now he knew all Kilcullen had to do was take out his sword and mow him down and he said Kilcullen I give you my word the next time we meet in battle I will turn from you and run if you run from me today now there was a battle going on in Kilcullen's heart at that moment the boy in him did not want to hurt his foster father tactician in him knew what an incredible advantage it would be to have the enemy general owe him a debt like this. But the hound in him was baying for the blood of this challenger. And it took every effort of will that he had for Kukulin to leash that hound. And so for the first and last time in his life he turned his back on a fight and he ran. Queen May said, Good after him, he's getting away. <laughs> no. I've done what I said I'd do. I'll not face Kukulin again until every single man in this army has faced him first. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> now, Maeve knew there was, in fact, one man in our army that had the skill to match Kukulin. But this man was making himself very very scarce. His name was Ferdia MacDonald. You see, Ferdy was <laughs> his mother, although he was born in Connacht, his mother was an Ulster woman and she was great friends with Decker Cullen's mother. And so they spent an awful lot of time together when they were younger. When Cullen went to train with Scott, the shadowy one, he found there already Ferdia was training with him. And it was this Irishman that was her greatest pupil. In fact, the two men became her greatest pupils because neither of them had ever met their match. They were so skillful. But in training together, they forged together a friendship closer than brotherhood. And they pushed each other to be more and more brilliant as they went on. And so, Ever since Ferdia came to Ulster, he was keeping to his tent and keeping to himself. But Maeve knew that her daughter was in fact in love with Ferdia. So she went to Edinburgh with those very fair eyebrows and she said, I know you're in love with Ferdia. Invite him to the tent tonight for a feast and I will allow him to marry you. Now that's exactly what she did. And she went and she got Ferdia and she brought him to the tent. And then Maeve sat him down with Vinever on one side of him. And well, she was sitting on the other side and she was pouring strong drinks into his glasses. Her Vinever was whispering sweet things into his ears and getting the choicest of meats until Ferdia felt really good about himself. <laughs> then Maeve leant over and said, You want to marry my daughter, Philibur, don't you, Ferdia? Straightened up, trying to make a good impression as the possible mother-in-law, and he said, Here it is, yeah, no, that'd be great. I really like her. She's got a fair pair of eyebrows. Don't say eyebrows. There's great speech for the woman, you know, it's me, you know. But nice marriage, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks so much. And you know what you have to do for me in order to win her hand, don't you, Bertie? Ah, uh, here, I know what you want to say now. Please, I know what. You took me to Nibelia. I love him, 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 I love him,
Either he would die at the hand of his best friend, or his best friend would die at his hand. And at that moment, Perdia could not decide which was worse. He dressed himself with great care. Now he'd known Cucullin many years, and he had always had a horror of the gay vulgar, so over his new linen tunic, he tied a great flat stone across his belly. And over that, he put his newest, strongest armor of leather and bronze. On his head, a cap worked with bronze and precious stones. And then he went down to the ford early, with the mist still hanging in the winter there. Now, it was the way of warriors in those olden days that they would perform battle feats before a single combat. Feats of skill and strength and agility to try to intimidate their opponent, make them back down. There were many of them. There was the salmon leap, the cat feet, the shield feet, the spear feet, and the apple feet. But the feats that Ferdy and McGammon did on this day, they have no name. For no warrior in those ancient days ever reached such a pitch of skill and strength. And no warrior in all the years that came after was able to match them again. And when Cucullin came down to the ford and saw the feats that Ferdia was performing, he had the same understanding. And without a word, he drew his sword and joined the fight. And on that day, they held nothing back. So close was the fighting that there was no air between them. So loud the clashing of their blades, the demons of the air awoke and began to scream. All of the birds of the air flocked and flew away, startling the animals herded by the army of Ireland, spooking them and frightening them so that they stampeded back to where they had come from. And all of the waters of the ford ran
then he wept over the body of his fallen friend, and he sang a lament. It was all a play, you see. It was all a sport, until Ferdia came to the fore.
Too soon. The men of Ulster have not yet awoken from their sleep. Promise me you will not leave this place undefended. He nodded. And he smiled a smile that did not reach his eyes. As he cast that spell, you could call him asleep and vanish out of view as quick as you can. Three days and three nights, Cucullin awoke fully feel he leapt to his feet in a panic, looking out over Ulster, expecting to see the hills burning. But they weren't. And he looked to Lady, and he asked him, What happened? Have the men of Ulster awoken from the curse? Lady shook his head, although he would not meet his eyes. He just said, Mom, it was the boys' truth, people. The boys' truth. My friends, my companions. Let us go to them, like we will, we will gather them. We will make a slaughter of the men of Ireland. We will. They will sing songs about us until the end of time. It was the boys' truth, people. Every one of them put down their hurlies and they picked up their short swords and they attacked the men of Ireland three times. They feared of Kilcullen. They will tell us stories about them till the end of time. Every one of them a hero Kilcullen. Every one of them is fallen. And with that, Kilcullen's battered heart shattered into a thousand pieces. He fell to his knees, now knowing the truth. Covered with points of blade and spear. Even the wheels were studded with knives, so that when it, they turned, they would churn through the earth and any man that got too close to them. Yoked, the grey of Maka and the black of Shanglane, the two battle horses, and they put on them their armor, so they were studded with knives, and the two horses bristled with blades as well, so they looked like creatures from the other world. Put on himself a light deerskin tunic because he knew he needed no such armor when he stood next to Cucullin. The Cucullin called for Suladin Macroy, his mother's husband, not a fighting man, to come near him now. He attended him in his sickbed and he pointed Suladin towards a war horse and told him to get up on this and wake the warriors of Ulster. Wake them now because they won't slept for too long. And he gave him his heavy war shield so he could protect himself on this. And then he felt his broken heart begin to beat again. And the grief that was going through him curdled and turned into something red and raw. As the anger and warm spasm took hold, he stood and leapt through the air as his muscles began to bulge sinew snapping, his bones bended, his knees turned around, his hair stood on end, his teeth became bangs, and he threw back his head, and he howled. The noise reverberated around the nine-sided helmet, and when the men of Ireland heard this howling, the hound of Ulster, they thought the end of the world had come, but when they saw him bear down on them, then they knew that it was 
rallying point near in high. And they were able to hold off the army of Ulster for long enough for most of the tattered remains of this great army to trickle through to the safety of Connacht. And in among them, unnoticed by the Ulstermen, there was a small group of raiders driving before them a great brown bull. And as Maeve came back to Connacht, she thought at least she'd won this one. They drove the Don Coinla into the fields of Crocanai, where Fionnbanach, the white horned bull, raised, raised his head. And the gleaming red eyes of the Don Coinla met the gleaming red eyes of the white horned Fionnbanach. And in that moment, the wind stilled everything around them, hushed, as something, some spark of recognition flew through their brains. They remembered Rohan. They remembered Rohan. They remembered the hatred and the enmity that was between them, that had been between them, that had sustained them for years, for eons, for time out of memory. They raced towards each other. And the clashing of their horns woke every babe in Ireland. As they fought, they knocked the tops off mountains. They gouged great ruts in the land that became valleys. As they fought, they trampled any man to get too close. Then the white horned bull, Fionnbanok, he saw his opening, but his swing, it went wide. And the Don Coenlan took the chance, and with the tip of his horn, he tore out the throat of the white horned bull. As Fionnbanok died there, the brown bull picked up his body and the
All right. Well, you've just heard the entirety of our version of Anton Bokunla. We did it in Whelan's on the 22nd of October with lots of help from various people. And now we want to talk about that myth. So I'm always struck by this story. We've told it a number of times mm. and we've taken our favourite bits and put it into one narrative. Of course, it's a story that could last for an entire winter if you wanted to. But there's something about this story that I want to talk about, I guess. There's many topics you can explore. But I guess, why is this story, Sirka, one of the most famous? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think that core personality of Ku Cullen is a really, he's a really compelling character. I always think it's interesting that uh, in the north of Ireland, where there's been a lot of conflict around sovereignty and, you know, whose land it is, Ku Cullen was adopted by both sides yeah. of the conflict. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's, 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 it's funny. It's, a, it's funny in a bleak way. Mm. But I think it also speaks to... Uh, you know, I think a good character in myth is one that means many things to many people. And this boy hero, this, you know, child soldier in some ways, uh, he's a really pure distillation of the warrior archetype. You know, he he fights for his people. He's totally honour bound. He's completely bound by his word and by this particular code of honour, which, you know, it must be said is not a modern code of honour and ethics. Mm. Uh, you know, his behaviour to, to some of us today would seem, you know, a Bar- little odd. Barbaric and cruel and... In in some ways, but... And he also, you know, as an archetype, has these incredible contradictions. As I think the best characters and archetypes do, you know, he is both beautiful boy... And he's often described as being beautiful. And he's always, he's, it's always beautiful, by the way, and never handsome. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that women lust after. And also this horrifying creature that he transforms into. When the rage takes hold of him. Yeah, when he gets this kind of, you know, barbaric battle rage idea that, that he, he almost becomes another, another creature. I'll come back to that in a moment. You've mentioned archetype a number of times, okay? Now, for those of us who've listened to, uh, you know, or thought about and read up on Jungian psychology, uh, not many of us. Uh, so, can you can you can you kind of tell me what an archetype in mythology kind of means and represents, and what, what that's about? Well, I can tell you my understanding of the word, which may not be the same as everybody's understanding of the world, or of the word rather. Um, an archetype is, well, they're they're supposed to be symbols and and codes uh, that are that exist in our collective unconscious. So Carl Jung, uh, who was an early psychologist, had this idea that humanity has a certain shared core, hmm. that there is a certain thing that that binds us. And if you look at world mythologies, you'll notice that there are striking similarities between characters in the old stories of many different cultures. And these are not cultures that would have had access to each other. And so his explanation for that was that as human beings, we have certain fundamental ways of seeing the world. Now, for me, one of the fundamental ways that human beings see the world is is through story. 
we we storify our lives. We we tell stories about who we are as a person. We storify. That's great. Isn't like it? it's what we do. It's our instinct. You ask somebody how was your day, and you will get a story. Yeah. You ask somebody where do you come from, you will get a story. Where did you go to school? Story. You see you know? someone walk across the street, you paint a picture, you, you absolutely figure out where they got a, their coat, their jacket, their tie. That's why people like people watching because you make up stories about people in your head. We watch television that's stories. So we're we're kind of constructed narratively, and and so both the structure of these narratives and the personalities within these narratives have these kinds of similarities. So if you take Cucullin. You see him coming up in, in modern media as well. The kind of Hulk character, you know, the, the person who rages and loses control is mm-hmm. very much based on, you know, maybe not consciously based on Ku Cullen, uh, but definitely is in the same archetypal territory, as is, you know, the werewolf myth. In some ways, there's a lot of correlation there as well, mm-hmm. except that that's happening. It's triggered in a different way. But this kind of bestial aspect coming out. Right. And... Just to hack back to something you said there, the collective unconscious. Now, if I'm a punter and I went to see the Whedon show, I saw, you know, a really interesting story, lads playing music, I followed the narrative, that's grand. What the fuck's collective unconscious? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like This is the bit where I'm like, I, this can get real fuzzy for me because it's it's a little bit of a difficult one to articulate clearly, but the idea is that we're connected. I mean, fundamentally, we're connected. Human beings are connected to one another and we think the same way. And these these kinds of patterns and stories are almost like they're sort of programmed into us from before we were born. Hmm. Uh, I'm getting a little woolly in my language, which is fine because I this is how I kind of use these things as, right, as, a, as a sort of a concept. We're in a woolly jumper. It's fine. <laughs> we're in a cold shed office. Shafas. Um But yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really interesting one. Like if you look at world mythology, which I, I often do, um, you see these weird parallels. You see these weird parallels that like All over the shouldn't place. be there, you know? Because I've heard that the town be called the Irish Iliad, you know, and like Greek mythology, again, we briefly touched on it last time about like how well researched and, and written about and how well uh, the the whole pa- pantheon is is described and everything, all the details are there, but we don't have it in Irish mythology. Mm-hmm. And yet you have super big reflections. And these dudes did not exactly text each other, did they? Well, no. Um, <laughs> like the 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 extent to which the Ton and the Iliad may actually have been originally the same story is a bit of an out there theory, but it is a theory that exists. There are enough parallels there. Mm. That there's, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't claim to know. There's all kinds of stories about where this where this tale came from, um, you know, physically and, and geographically and in terms of its location and history. And I got to say, I don't really care. <laughs> all right. OK, but so it's there's similarities. The, re- the reason I say yeah. I don't really care is not to is not to dismiss that connection because I think it's real. It's just that, like, I I think if we go down a path of trying to get very you know, rational and, and uh, analytic, yeah. we can end up tripping ourselves up. And I don't really have the expertise in that area of it because that's not what interests me about these these myths. What interests me about them is is that this is a kind of a almost like an interior landscape. If you look at myths in a certain way, they are a psychological reflection of certain aspects of humanity. 
And that's the way that I'm interested in looking at them more than, you know, where do they came from and which which redaction of which text is it and, you know, what's the links? I like that now. I like that a lot. Internal landscape. So I'm listening to this story and I hear something like I hear the death of Ferdia. And yeah. that brings me back to the last funeral I was at, the heartbreak that I felt, whatever. You don't have to be at a friend's funeral. You don't have to have actually experienced that no. to feel the heartbreak. Absolutely. And it's. I think it's also, it's taking to an extreme a conflict that many of us have had at one time or another, where you have your, your personal relationship in conflict with your kind of almost professional status mm. or your familial status or your familial, you know, connections. Right. You know, you we, we there are a lot of times that people can get into this this, you know, which 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 way do your loyalties lie when your loyalties conflict like that? You know? So again, this is my last point on, on I guess the kind of the this reflection on myth as as a broader idea, like because it's how we connect to it, isn't it? It's mm. like as whatever about internal landscape and this collective unconscious. It's just the fact to simply say there's a story going on there that we can go through our day to day and forget about feeling human. And all of a sudden you get this emotion thrown at you and you can just ride the wave. Totally. And you c it connects you back to your own humanity and it connects you back to... I think an idea, there's there's something really powerful in that idea that people have been listening to something very, very like this story for... Fucking ages. You know, hundreds, thousands of years. That's mad. Like, Which is mad. That's mad. But it's also great because you get that sense of actually rootedness and connection. Because it's so old, if you think about it. Like this, you can't really time this. You date it back to when it's written down. That was written down after an oral tradition of God knows how long. Like. And it is exactly God knows how long. Like there isn't really a way of estimating how long no. that is that I'm aware of that is, you know, actually, you know, there's nobody until we invent time travel. We're never going to know exactly where that genesis point was. OK, so we, we, that was that was an interesting chat about myth. Um, I found it interesting. Anyway, I, I, last time in our first podcast, if you listen to it, we talked about Maeve and her, her character, her voracious sexual appetite, just wanting to get the ride and all that. But I kind of want to talk about Coo Cullen here. And you mentioned the archetype. You mentioned his rage. What is it about Coo Cullen and this story that is that is so drawing towards us and so fascinating? It's like, it's like a moth towards a flame. We're like, oh, mm. wow, cool, cool, cool. But is it cool? That's a that's a very good point and I think that's a that's a point about Kukulin that often I think gets lost is that he's this precocious uh child warrior and like the the first the first book of the tone that I ever had was it was a novelization called On Raven's Wing by uh, an author called Morgan Llewellyn and I think I'm pronouncing her name wrong. You read but, that to um, me and then when it got to the sex bit with him and Emer Maria my mum took the book off you and stopped I, I used that. to skip those bits. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry. No, Stay I sure. just skipped over certain bits. Cause, but I, I also, I, I, re, like, I used to reread books a lot at that age. And I used to read the first half of that book because the second half was too sad. Wow. Like, I often, you know, I, I reread the second half of it much less than I reread the first half of it. Because mm. it was just like, it's such an incredibly sad story. 
like the latter half of Coo Cullen's life. And we did we did a storytelling about this in, in Galway Theatre Festival earlier this year, you know, where we were we were actually kind of our problem was how do we pace this relentless gallop towards tragedy? Because in the second half of his life, Killing Freddie is the beginning of his tragic yeah. downslide. But he's you just know? met war as well. He's just seen it properly for the this first time. This is it. This is this is in some ways a young man going to war for the very first time. Although he's fought before, it's never impacted him emotionally. And he says it. He says it directly in the, the Freddie element. This was a game yeah. until somebody I loved died. Always play. Always sport till Freddie came to the forward. And I, I, I gotta say, I, I, I can't imagine that that's an unusual experience for young men going to war. Yeah, you God, know, if you think about it, and so if you think about the way that soldiers are trained today, with a lot of simulations that kind of look like computer games, and the dehumanization of enemies that has gone on since time out of mind, you know, it, it can feel like a game. So if this tale, however popular, however well repeated it was obviously was for a very long time and everyone's subjective experience is different and you take what mm. you connect to out of it but Absolutely and we're not we're not trying to give a, a singular interpretation here that is the right interpretation your own reaction or your, is your own like. Yes but and yet can I ask you then what for you for us for Candle of Tales what's our kind of is this a, a story that paints the fallacy of war for example is that what I think that's a massive part of it. And I think that 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 weird coda at the end where we went, where we go back to the bulls Mm. and where they came from and what they actually were about is, you know, it's such a perfect encapsulation of why this story is not about the glory of war. I mean, it's got some really exciting bits in it and it's got some really cool fight scenes in it. And it's got some, you know, if it were a film, it would have some great action sequences in it. But it's an absolute heartbreaker of a story. And at the end of it, Queen Maeve, who loses children in this battle of her own and whose army is just eviscerated. She has literally got nothing to show for it. Because the bulls kill each other. And again, you know, you take it. You, if you just tell the story of Frucht and Rook, the two swineherds of the two Adedanen, this is about them not letting go of a grudge mm. until both of them are dead. And that's again, well, I, I see similarities with with Kukulan losing his his anger and and then pouring out his rage and it just it not stopping the war. That doesn't fix the war. Yeah. You know, this idea that Frucht and Rook started fighting and they would not let the damn thing go and Maeve and Aliel started fighting and they wouldn't let it go it's I think there's a there's a there's a really interesting thing going on in there kind of between the lines where all of these people are getting stuck into an escalating conflict and due to pride and status and ideas about what their rank is and and what is what is correct behavior and mm. How you should bow down to me, not me bowing down to you. And you should turn back from me, not me turning back from you. They get locked into this um, untenable, inescapable situation. And no matter what they face, as long as they face it with anger, they just get anger. And totally. fighting spreads out from it. And you can, you know, this is, this, is not a, this is not an imagined idea. This is a true thing. Gandhi knew it. Uh, well, uh, you know, anybody who's 
ever diffused an argument knows it. Yeah. Do you know? If somebody comes at you with anger and you come right back at them with anger, they'll get angrier. So I think basically what we're saying, lads, is chill out. <laughs> Just be grand, like, you know. I think that's our I think that's chat. That's our interpretation of, of what the dawn if fundamentally means in a nutshell it's yeah. also a great yarn I mean the tradition was to tell it after winter uh, or after dark in winter which I think I mentioned the last time and uh, I, I really like that idea of it's like it's a dark story mm. it's, a, it's a dark story for the dark time of the year when you get nice and cosy and uh, yeah listen to the tale and remember why you're listening to it so guys I hope you enjoyed that this is our second podcast next time we're going to be looking at a couple of the pre-scalta. We're going to be looking at more depth at the Deirdre story and the Curse of Maka. Stay tuned. We'll be we'll be in touch now that we've got our shafas, which is <laughs> a shed basically, but it's an office. It's a shafas, and we've a got shafas. a recorder, and we've amazingly got. Uh, we don't have a, a recorder stand, but we do have a pile of books. Uh, it's good foundations, like you know what I mean. Uh, we've got Ancient Irish Tales, Mythic Ireland by your man Murphy, uh, the Encyclopedia of Mythology and Folklore. These are all circus books. <laughs> uh, she reads books like I Eat Biscuits. And uh, yeah, she managed to retain, retain most of it, the information. Uh, so what else? Uh, I think we can just give a shout out to all the people who helped us making this show. Uh, Oshin Ryan, who's also editing this podcast. Uh, Audrey Trainer, Rue O'Shea. Uh, they were all on music in the recording. Of course, we had help with making the show and making the music for the show uh, a couple of times. And we had help from Angel Hannigan, Kat Lachlan, Lachlan Aoife Kavanagh, Dara Kenny, Antonella Scanu, who helped in various versions. And the Shadow Puppetry, which was an extra treat for the visual element of the live show, was done by Marie Denham of Flight of Fancy. Jay Lambert also made two beautiful bull heads. I told him a story and he made me these bullheads like what a yeah, treat. They're so pretty cool. This guy's just a, a genius of a craftsman and we've been given craft and gifts and music and talent just by telling stories to people. Now we like to try and pay these people so if you'd like to support us and help <laughs> Nice segue. That was good. Right? Yeah. Except you fucked it up there didn't you? <laughs> I just drew attention to how you were being smooth. I was Yeah you, know, you can you can find you can go to Patreon and you can Because we like to support us. artists and you know create art. So we have a Patreon page at last and it's up online if you want to click it help us out price of a pint or cup of coffee or whatever you think you might have Remember, if you do support us, you're supporting the lad who's listening to this who can't afford it because it's for them too because this is a free podcast. Now, that's it, I think. Um, I think you can also look us up on our website, which is candlelittales.ie. Very or, complicated. Or and Google you us. Can, uh, you, know, you can also Google, Google us. Machine. And if you had any reactions or questions about the tone that we didn't cover in this chat, send them in to us. Yeah. Let us know. And we will get to them in a future podcast. Because we left out loads. There are many, <laughs> many stories, lads, and many ways to tell them. So look, we leave it there. All right. Let's Until blow. next time. You.